0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. All right, well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. And if I seem a little bit uh, off today or a little bit tired, uh, just forgive me. I got about an hour or an hour and a half sleep in the front of the Honda Pilot this morning, parked at the Tehachapi Hospital this morning because I had to take Kim to the ER last night and, uh, and she's fine, so you don't have to worry. Um, uh, because what, but uh, but she, I did have to take her to the ER because uh, yesterday, um, you know, after all these years of living and born, it finally caught up to her. Um, she uh, came home, parked the car, opened the door, and a little gust of wind blew some uh, dirt in her eyes, and we couldn't get it all out. So I had to. So eleven thirty last night, we made a trip to Tachapi. and. Uh, um, <clears throat> so I'm a little bit tired. And, but the good news is the doctor was able to irrigate you know, her eyes and get all that out of there. And he was able to lift the eyelid and take a Q-tip and get the rest of the junk out. And there was this one little stubborn speck that he had to actually work uh, to, to get it out. And so, um, um, again, the good news is uh, she's going to be just fine. Um, and she just needs to rest a little bit. Uh, the bad news is since that nurse plucked that speck out of her eye, she thinks she can judge everybody. So... <laughs> <laughs> For, uh, for those of you who don't know what everybody's laughing about, just uh, turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, and you'll get it, okay? But for the rest of you, um, <laughs> if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your mobile phone, please turn with me to the book of Job. We're going to be in chapter number 1. And uh, if you're new to the Bible and you're not sure where the book of Job is, actually, it's in the Old Testament, and it is right before the book of Psalms. And that's. Um, Usually pretty easy to spot. So I want to welcome you back here to the fourth and final part of this series titled Know Your Enemy. And the reason why we are in this series is because as we've talked about before, you are in a battle with a very real enemy. And uh, this series has been about identifying who that enemy is. And, and he has many names. We, his, his name can be, has been Satan, Lucifer, the devil, the deceiver, um, the serpent, or even the old dragon. Okay? And this enemy isn't some fictional character. He is real. And he is actively, actively hunting you and hunting your family and your friends and everyone that you have ever cared about in your entire life. As, uh, as Rick Warren said, he wants to destroy you. And I don't, I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm not trying to be one of those people that tries to get people fired up. But I'm just telling you the truth. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your relationships. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your health. He wants to destroy your finances. He wants to destroy your reputation. He wants to destroy your peace. But most importantly... He wants to destroy your eternity, and he wants to destroy the eternity of everyone that you love and everyone that you ever cared about. That's what he wants. And so several weeks ago, we kicked off this series, and we started talking about the myths that surround this enemy that make it really kind of hard to identify who he really is. And the very first myth that we talked about is the myth that is this idea that Satan doesn't even exist, okay? And this first myth, as we talked about, isn't just promoted by you know uh, our culture, but it's also promoted by some people actually inside the church right they think that he's a fictional character to explain death and pain okay and this is a very dangerous myth but as we discovered you know from from scripture this is myth is completely false because uh, because uh, we know for sure that he does exist. The, the scripture talks about him existing. And not to mention that the apostles and the New Testament authors talk about him. And, and, and most importantly, Jesus, God in the flesh, talks about him and talks to him. And, and he believed that Satan is Real Now, the second myth that we tackled is this myth that Satan somehow uh, is the opposite idea of that, 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 um, that some people believe that Satan is real, but they believe that he's Jesus' equal counterpart, okay? that he's equal to Jesus in the opposite direction, that somehow Satan and, and Jesus are evenly matched. Uh, but as we talked about this before, Jesus is in fact God in the flesh, Which means he is is the creator of all things. He is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. Whereas Satan is a created being. He's part of creation. Which means he has limited power. He has absolutely no match at all for Christ. And then... And the second week, we moved from things that, that about the enemy that, that, uh, that, that he isn't, and we started talking about the things about who he is. We started talking about where he comes from and, and why he does what he does and, and even how he does what he does. And we explored the scriptures, and we were able to get a clear picture of who our enemy is. Satan began his existence as a beautiful and wise angel named Lucifer and he was created prior to the creation of the world and somewhere between that time and the time that he tempted Eve because of his pride he wanted to replace God and so he incited a third of the angels to rebel against him and that rebellion rages to this present day and the devil's aim is to hurt God but he can't hurt him directly so what does he do? He hurts what God loves which is his creation and so Satan wages. This war against creation, which means you and me and our families. And, and it all began in the Garden of Eden. And this war, though it, is, it has physical consequences that we can experience, this war actually is fought in the heavenly realm. Satan is not you know, bound to hell, as some of our culturally induced images suggest. He is a fallen angel who still roams freely in the spiritual world, and he has access to the physical world as well. And his demon army... Work overtime to deceive the nations and to deceive unbelievers and keep them unbelievers. And he works very hard to tear down and try to defeat Christians to make them useless in this battle. Okay, that's who our enemy is. He is not a myth. He's not a figment of our imagination, but nor is he God's equal. He's certainly powerful, but not all-powerful. He is wise and intelligent, but he is not all-knowing. He has a huge army okay, that does his bidding all over the world, but he is not ever-present. He is certainly formidable as a foe, but he is a defeated foe nonetheless. And he will soon be judged and punished for eternity. And then last week we got real practical and we talked about how we can stand our ground and fight back against this enemy. Because as believers and, and Christ followers, we are not helpless victims. As the children of God who have a promised inheritance, we are not helpless casualties of war. Okay, We're not residents who who um, who... who We're in some war-torn city in a little building huddled together, you know, quivering and afraid, hoping the enemy doesn't find us. That is not who we're supposed to be. That is not who Jesus calls us to be. If you belong to Jesus, you're not supposed to be that way. Because if you have been saved by Jesus and you know who it is that has your back and you know for sure who has your eternity, then you have the power by God to fight back. Because that's what Christians do. They fight back. You see, we don't have to cower when our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. We don't have to run for cover when the enemy shows his face. We can stand our ground and fight back. We have the ability as God's chosen instrument in this world to fight back and even take the fight to the enemy himself. And last week we talked about how. We found in the scripture, as Paul was talking about, how we fight against the enemy in Ephesians chapter 6. And that's where he talks about the armor of God. And I'm just going to read it real quick just to summarize it for you, okay? Paul says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. With which you can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of the salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that and keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And last week we summarized this text in a way that makes it really practical for all of us. That we can actually take this and apply it to our own individual lives so we can stand our ground in this battle. And the summary is this. Read your Bible, pray, obey God's commands, walking in truth and righteousness, and keep your mind and your heart focused on the gospel and salvation. And by the way, stay in fellowship, because if you know anything about Roman soldiers, they fight in groups. Okay, that's how we summarize this. And that's how you actually stand your ground against the enemy. It's about being in the word of God. People who get attacked by the enemy and who get knocked down and become casualties of war are the ones that are not using their sword of the spirit, the word of God. And they're the ones that are not in prayer. Now I realize this is a really super quick summary of all that we covered in the last three weeks of this series. And if you missed any of this, I want to encourage you to go back and listen uh, to what you've missed. And you can do that by either going to, um, fbcboron.org, which is our church website. Or you can just go to our SoundCloud page, It's in, the, the address is in your bulletin. Now today, today we're going to tackle the big question. In fact, we're going to tackle the biggest and hardest question that anybody can ask about this particular subject. And believe me, it is not a new question. Because people have been asking this particular question for thousands of years of years but it is still a huge question it's an important question but it is not new okay it is certainly very very tough though and the question i'm just going to get right to it is simply this if god is actually good and all knowing and all powerful then why has god allowed satan to exist and why has god allowed satan to go as far as he has without attempting to stop him that's the question. And, and, and it's the question because in our hearts, that's what we want to know. Okay? If God is actually all good, then, then, and, and there is no evil in him, and knowing the fact that he is all-knowing and all-powerful and he can do anything, then why, why did he allow Satan to come into existence? I mean, in, in his omniscience, in his all-knowingness, didn't he see it coming? Didn't he see the kind of destruction the enemy would cause in the world? I mean, if God knows all, then he had to at least know how this was going to go bad in a hurry, right? And if he knew that... Okay, it was going to go bad, then why did he even allow it to happen? Why did God allow Satan to rebel and start that war and allow a third of the angels to join that fight and then allow us to get caught up in the mess? If God knew this was going to happen, then why would he even gamble with creating Lucifer in the first place? Why would he do that? And let's just say that, that, that he had a reason to let Satan live. Then why has he allowed it to go this far? Why has he allowed Satan to be so destructive? Why has he allowed Satan to inflict so much pain? Because because the truth is this. If God is sovereign and all-powerful, then everything the devil does is within the room that God allows Satan to operate. You need to understand that. You need to own that. The enemy is only allowed to do or able to do what God allows him to do. And you might think, well, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. Okay? And that God doesn't allow Satan to do what Satan does. Okay? God doesn't allow Satan to rebel and inflict pain and destruction. He just does it. Um, You would be wrong. Because if Satan can do anything outside the control of God, okay, then God isn't actually all-powerful. And he isn't then sovereign, which means he's not god you have to understand the implications of that but we know that he is all-powerful and we know that he is all-knowing and he, that he is infinite and that he created all things in the universe and that he is sovereign in every way he has control which means god for whatever reason decided not to kill satan or to stop him from unleashing the pain and destruction that he has throughout creation why why is that? Why wouldn't God stop him? I mean, think about... When we think about cancer and child abuse and the horrors of war and, and, and sex slavery and, and pain caused by divorce, we're forced to ask why. Okay? When we think about the ravages of, of drug addiction and alcohol addiction, when we think about racism and the horrid ways that we treat other people in the name of hate, we're forced to ask why. Because we know for a fact... That the enemy had a hand in this. That this is the work of the devil, which means God for some reason has allowed it to happen. He has decided not to stop it. Why has he allowed that? That's the question that so many people wrestle with. And that is the question that, 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 that poses a really serious objection to faith for so many people in the world around us. And it's the question that we're going to try to answer today. If God is good and all-powerful, why has he allowed Satan to live and do what he has done? And let me just, let me just be really upfront with you. Um, we're going to take a serious hard look at this question and we're going to dig in and examine what the Bible has to say. We're going to explore the theology of this question. We're going to look at the philosophy of this question. We're going to draw some conclusions. We're going to formulate to the best of our abilities, a clear answer to this question, a very serious and real answer to this question. But let me just tell you right now, there are some questions that we're going to ask in this lifetime, this side of eternity that have no easy answers. There are some questions that no matter how you answer them, they will still be left off and i feeling like, "Was that it? Isn't there more than that? I mean, I really thought there should be more than this. Isn't there a better explanation than that? There'll be times that the answer that we get doesn't really make us feel better. Okay? And we're like, I, I don't like that answer. There are going to be some questions that, that, that we're going to have to answer that we're just not going to be happy With the answers, and there are some answers they're going to leave us feeling somewhat unsatisfied. Okay, and it's because of that emotion, it's because of that feeling. There are so many Christians who want to jump in and defend God, and either gloss over the question entirely, or answer the question in a way that's just not completely true or not biblical. For example, there are lots of Christians who will say, well, well, because of this reason or that reason, uh, God cannot intervene in that right now. Okay? That, that God cannot stop the enemy. That the God cannot keep Satan from doing what Satan is doing. Okay? Right? He can't do that until Jesus comes back. Somehow, God is powerless to stop that. For some reason, God's hands are tied because of some spiritual law that's at work. Right? And they say these things not because they're true, they say these things because they're trying to deflect blame off of God, right? They're trying to deflect blame off of God for the bad things that happen in the world. They're trying to make excuses for God. But there's a couple of things that we need to understand. Number one, the first thing you have to come to grips with is God does not need us to defend him. He does not need us to try to protect his reputation. He doesn't need us to answer everybody's objections. He doesn't need for us to make excuses for him. He is God. He can take care of himself. We don't need to explain away the hard questions. He is God. We can answer the hard questions with the hard truth. Because guess what? If we don't fully understand what God does... And we don't fully understand why he allows what he allows. And we decide that we're just fed up and get angry and shake our fist at him and say ugly things to him and about him. He's still God. And he is still sovereign. The second thing is, is the idea that God can't intervene and stop the enemy is just patently false. It's just a false idea that God couldn't kill Satan right now or put a stop to what's happening right now. It's just a false idea. Okay. That God couldn't hit the reset button is a false idea, because He could do it right now, make everything brand new. Because He can do all that and more. That is the truth. God is fully sovereign, fully in control. So then, why, if He can change it, if He can fix it and put a stop to it and put an end to the enemy, why hasn't he done it yet? I mean, if God really has all those powers and we, as we believe He can and He can stop the enemy right now and He's truly a good God, then why hasn't He put a stop to it yet? Why hasn't He ended suffering? Why does He still allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, as I said, this is a really, really, really old question. And this is a question that's explored in the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job. So turn with me to the book of Job, chapter number 1. Now before we get into this story, let me just um, explain to you a little bit about Job. Job was actually a real person who lived in history in a time period before the birth of Abraham. Which means he lived prior to the nation of Israel. He lived prior to the the law of Moses being given, which is found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so the book of Job is actually believed by many to be the oldest book in the entire Bible. And in this story, we encounter a man who is righteous before God. God, He's someone that God is pleased with. He is someone who tries his very best to keep the law, right? He turns away from evil. In fact, we pick up the story in verse one. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read this, this text to you. You can read along with me in your Bibles. Uh, if you would, would like. Verse one says, there was a man in the land of, of Uz whose name was Job. And this man was blameless and upright who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him, seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and <clears throat> very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Job was super rich. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their sisters and eat to eat and drink with them. And so, Basically, his ten kids like the party. Okay? They're rich kids. They just want to party. And so when the, the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send to consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So Job is not only a righteous man, but he also was... Taking care of priestly duties for his own family, making intercession before God to cover up the sins of his kids. Now it says there was a day when the sons of men came to present themselves before the Lord. Now this is the sons of men. They're talking about angels here in this story. Okay, so it says now there, there was a day when the sons of men came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Satan, "From where have you come?" Satan answered. The Lord and said from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Verse 13, now there was a day when the sons and his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the, uh, in the oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So he's lost a gigantic portion of his wealth like that. But notice what it says here. It says, while he was yet speaking. So the, this guy didn't finish saying what he had to say. And the next guy comes in and says, um, The fire from God fell down from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, again, There came another who said, The the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. If that wasn't bad enough, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, watch this. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell upon the ground, and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, we're going to continue this story in a second, but I just got to stop here and I got to make a comment on this. Because... Um first thing I want I want to say is I know for a fact you've had some bad days. Okay? And I know I've had some bad days. Okay. Um but I think this is probably one of the all-time worst bad days that could ever have happened to somebody. He lost everything in a matter of minutes including his 10 children. But notice what he does. Okay? He in his grief, he tears his robes, okay, which is a sign of grief. He shaves his head. Which is a sign of grief. I'm not grieving, by the way. Okay, But he shaved his head as a sign of grief. And he fell to the ground. And he, he did what? He worshipped God. Saying, naked I came in from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sing that song, actually. Now, I don't know about you. But on my worst days, I don't think I remember to worship. Um, and so this is really a a huge testimony about this guy's character. So let's continue. Verse 22, it says, and in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In all that happened, he didn't blame God for this. And then it gets even worse. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan was among them and to present himself before the lord and the lord said to satan from where have you come satan answered the lord and said from going to and fro on the earth walking up and down on it and the lord said to satan have you considered my servant job that there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears god and turns away from evil he still holds fast to his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason and satan answered the lord and said skin for skin all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bones and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hands. Only spare his life. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head and he took a piece of broken uh, pottery with which to scrape himself as he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Should we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil in all this? Job did not sin with his lips. Now from this story, I just want to make a couple of quick observations. Number one, as we talked about, um, Satan, even though that he's in rebellion to God, is not confined to the pit of hell yet. Okay? He is mobile. He has access to the physical world. He has access to heaven. He even has access to God. He comes before God, which means God has allowed this range of movement. Number two, the affliction that happened to Job are... At the hand of the devil. The devil is the source of this pain and destruction. The devil is the one who is responsible. But understand, God has allowed it to happen. Okay? And this is in fact what makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. God allows it to happen. Okay? In fact, it, it couldn't happen if God didn't allow it to happen. The enemy says that you're protecting him. And he was. And it wasn't until God allowed Satan to afflict him that he actually Could. And again, this is something that makes so many of us squirm. Because Job was righteous. And even Satan took everything physically, afflicted him with disease. And even then, his own wife was encouraging him just to curse God and die. And with all that, he still didn't sin against God. This guy didn't deserve what happened to him. And yet God allowed this to happen. And believe me. If there was a person in the world that had the right to ask, why? Why is this happening to me? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? If anybody had the right to ask that question, it was Job. Okay? He didn't do anything wrong. The reasons for this happening were beyond his understanding. Everything was taken from him. Why would God allow this to happen? Which is the question Job does ask in this story for several chapters over and over, he asks this question. Now, if, if that weren't enough to like make you really depressed and upset and frustrated with life, Job has several friends who decide to come to visit him and try to comfort him. All right, It's already bad enough when your friends want to comfort you when you're really down in the dumps, because sometimes that just makes it worse. But then they come, instead of comforting him, they actually start blaming him because their theo- their theology was really simple if you do good god 's going to do good to you if you do bad then god 's going to afflict you and so god, so job was afflicted so badly then he must have done some really bad stuff is really what they were saying to him that job you know every time job tried to talk, they were like they would just basically shut him up, saying you need to just basically admit that you did something wrong right and they just make it worse now there 's still lots of people, including a lot of Christians who think. Along these same lines, they think that if something bad happens to you, you know, God's punishing you, all right? That somehow when that flat tire, you get sick or having, you know, losing your job or your relationship falling apart is God's punishing you for the wrongs that you commit. Now understand God can and God does punish people, all right? He disciplines people and especially disciplines those he loves. The, The word says that, but not everything that bad happens is a punishment, Okay? Sometimes bad things happen just because you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. We live in a broken world filled with broken people. Bad things happen. Okay? And there are also times when bad things happen to good people that God allows because actually it brings about a greater good. I don't know if you know the story about a lady named Johnny Erickson Tata, but she suffered a horrific accident when she was really young that left her a, a quadriplegic. And... Uh, at first, she was devastated by her accident, and she cursed God. But as time went on, she grew closer and closer to God. And over her lifetime, God has used her in an incredible way to touch the lives of millions of people. Okay, And somebody asked her one time, said, would you change the past so you wouldn't end up in the wheelchair? And she said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's the wheelchair that holds me up against God. It is the wheelchair that thrusts me against God and I have experienced him in a way that I never could without it. So not everything happens that's bad is a punishment from God. But Job's friends certainly thought it was, and so they spent hours and hours, and I mean, like chapter after chapter, just going back and forth with him, trying to get him to admit that he was wrong. And Job protests and maintains an innocence and he even begins, God, begins to beg God to give him a hearing to find out what the charges are against him. That he's basically asking, why me, Lord? Why do you, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why, Lord? Explain yourself to me, God, is essentially what he was doing. And then suddenly, something unexpected happens. God showed up. In chapter 38, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's talking about Job's friends. Like saying, you guys just don't know what you're talking about. And then he goes to Job and says, dress for action like a man. So he's saying, dress yourself up because you're going to court, okay? And he says, I will question you and you will make it known to me. And here he gets to the heart of the matter right, right from the beginning. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined his measurements? Surely you know, Okay. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the, the morning stars, the angels, sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, the thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea and walked the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know all this. Where were you? Where is the way of the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born then, and it's a satire, and the number of your days are great. Have you not entered the storehouse of snow or have you seen the storehouse of hail, which I have reserved for a time of trouble for the day of battle and war? What is the way to this place where the light is distributed or where the the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and the ways for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land where no man is, on the desert where where there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or has... Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters came hard like stone. And and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Pleiades. Or loose the cords of Orion? Can you uh, lead forth the Mazaroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that you, that they may go and say, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts and give an understanding to the mind who, who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of heavens when the dust runs into a mass and it clods and it's quad stick to, uh, fast together. Can you hunt the prey for the lion and satisfy the appetite for young lions? Okay. When they crouch in their dens or lie and wait in the thicket who provides for the ravens, it's prey when its young ones cry out to god for help and wonder about a lack of food you see that's just a small portion of god's rebuke okay you see god shows up and he doesn't answer job's question you notice that he doesn't answer his question at all instead he asks job who are you to make a demand of me where were you when i created the universe what were you doing when i created everything out of nothing and then he asks, who are you? Are you able to provide for all those that need provision? Are you able to give justice to those who deserve it? Are you able to even understand how things work in the universe? Do you actually understand how it's all put together? And then in verse 39, he continues this kind of question. And essentially God is just basically asking him, tell me how much you know about creation and the world around you. Tell me how it works. Okay. And how it should work. Tell me how great you are. And then I'll answer your question. And then in chapter 40 it reads. And the Lord said to Job. Shall a fault finder contend with the almighty? And he, he who argues with God let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said. Behold I am small account. He finally sees the perspective. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Right? I've spoken once and I will not further, twice and I will proceed no further. Job finally sees how great God is and how puny Job is. God says to Job, Who are you to question me? And Job immediately recognizes his folly. He's come face to face with the reality that he is not questioning some person who has motives and plans that he can even understand. He's questioning the almighty and infinite God. And in that moment, he realizes just how foolish this seems. It's kind of like a four-year-old throwing a temper tantrum because he can't have a toy. And he blames his parents and he accuses them of not loving him. But the child cannot possibly understand all the parents do for him. They can't possibly, he can't possibly understand that. He can't understand the sacrifices that parents make to provide for kids. He can't possibly understand the lessons that parents need to teach their children about the way the world works. And the child can't understand the parent has a reason, has a reason to say no. It's the same kind of thing. It's just a much grander and bigger scale. Job realizes how silly and childish even his demand for, for God to answer him. And he's like, okay, Lord, I'm going to shut up now. But God isn't finished. Because you, you remember when you were a kid, you know, and then like you got in trouble and your parents gave you a lecture. And then like you're in the middle of the lecture, you're like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I know. I get it. I'm sorry. And, and, and that didn't stop your parents because they just went on for like another hour and a half. Okay, that's kind of what happens here because like, like, because God, you know, goes on and says, dress for action like a man and I will question you and, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me, you know, that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like this? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, clothe yourself in glory and splendor, pour out, the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge you that you, that your own right hand can save you. And then, like I said, God continues this lecture for like another chapter and a half. Okay. And then in chapter 42 then Job finally answers the Lord and says I know that you can do all things and that uh, no purpose of yours can be thwarted Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge therefore I have uttered what I do not understand things too wonderful for me which I did not know He said I spoke out of turn I spoke in my ignorance Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes, my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, Job came to a clear and profound understanding that God isn't simply some person with which they have extraordinary powers to create things. He isn't some king that you can appeal to and make a legal request of because he's some man. Job came face to face with the understanding that God is vastly greater and more complex than his imagination could possibly ever fathom. That's God's way. That his ways are infinitely bigger than his own ways. And that in that perspective, Job realized that the near silliness of his question, he was innocent, yes. Yes, he was righteous before God. Yes, he suffered incredible loss at the hands of the devil, even though he did nothing wrong. And yes, God permitted it. But standing there in the presence of God, the significance of his question was greatly diminished. Once Job saw the glory and the majesty of God, he understood his question was actually irrelevant. Now, his question wasn't irrelevant because God didn't care about him. Okay, Understand, God cared about him because he restored him like uh, several fold. He made it, God gave it all back to him and and he even cared enough about him to actually even talk to Job and show up in the first place. His question wasn't relevant because of that. His question was irrelevant because he came to understand that God is truly sovereign and in control and that God had a plan and a purpose for everything including his suffering and the existence of the devil and his destructive activities in the world. God has a plan and a purpose for everything. And we, being finite creatures, most of the time, we're not going to understand that plan and purpose, especially in the moment. And that's what Job realizes, that he actually, what he did wrong, right? Okay, He needed to repent of something. What he needed to repent of is is that when everything fell apart, instead of him demanding that God explain himself to him, he should have actually just drew up closer to God and trusted him even more, knowing that God is actually in control, But God, because God is sovereign. He is in control. He has a plan. Everything... He has a plan for even the worst things, even the things the devil does. Now that might, you might think, well, that doesn't, doesn't that mean that God is actually the author of evil? I mean, if he permits it to happen, doesn't that mean that, 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 that that he's responsible for it? If he, if he doesn't stop it, if he builds his plans around the stuff the devil does, doesn't make him responsible for what the devil does. Isn't God actually responsible for evil itself? Well, no, he's not responsible for that. In fact, I'm going to share with you a quick video um, that I've shared before, but I think it's going to help shed some light on, on this and why God's not responsible for evil. Go ahead.
1: Is God good? If he is, why is there suffering and evil? Let's assume for the moment that God is all-powerful. This means that God can do anything that is logically possible. So he can create galaxies and subatomic particles and rainforests and you but God cannot do what is logically impossible he cannot make a square circle or a one ended stick so can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it no so what if when God created human beings he wanted them to be free freedom's a good thing but if humans are to be free they cannot be forced to obey God Because freedom without choice is like a square circle. It's a logical contradiction. No choice, no freedom. God didn't want robots. He wanted real people. The first humans endowed with the awesome power of free choice abused their freedom. The tragic consequences of their bad choice and our bad choices ripple across the world. God is responsible for the fact of freedom, but humans are responsible for their acts of freedom. But let's remember, we don't suffer alone. God will put an end to suffering and evil. And God became a man to suffer with us. God is good, and he wants real people like you to know him. But the free choice is yours.
0: See, at the heart of this uh, answer of the question of why, is simply the idea of freedom. God created all of mankind with free will; He gave us all ability to choose. We can either love Him or not, obey Him or not. God did not create us as pre-programmed automatons. He gave you a choice. But not only did he give <clears throat> mankind a free will, he also created angels with free will too. They were free, just like we are. Now, there's going to be some of you who says that, there, especially in this modern um, or this postmodern culture, there are people that will say, well, that's just irrelevant. I mean, I don't even think free will is a real thing, or it's not even relevant or even that important. Because there are just a lot of people today, like I said, in this postmodern culture who question even the value of free will or the value of freedom. In fact, there are many people who are willing to give up rights and freedoms in order to have security in their country. I mean, they're talking about this right now on college campuses. People are actually, in, you know, intelligent people are talking about restricting the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press and the freedom of religion and the freedom of the right to assemble and abolishing the Second Amendment in an effort to create a safer world people are willing to give up freedom in order to have their sense of security and many people think to themselves it would just have been better it would have just been better for god to create a world where everybody just obeyed perfectly right that there's no room for abuse there was no way for people not to obey god's commands they, they would be obeyed all the time and so there was no evil there's no pain no suffering and no devil and i know many christians who think well you know why did god even have to give you know adam and you have a choice anyway. Why did he have to give Looser the freedom to choose? And I understand where they're coming from. I, I really do. Because they see the pain and the suffering in the world around them and, and the people that they care about. Right? And, and they, they think about removing freedom would have made things better. In fact, many of them believe that, you know what, if, if they could give up their freedom you know, to help people and to not suffer, they would totally do that. And, and, and I've actually thought the same thought at one point in my own life. But is it true? Would, the, would we be better off for God to have eliminated free will? And, and I think intrinsically most of us on some level know that it would, would not have been better. Yes, creation would still be pristine and and would be run perfectly, but it would not be better. You see, God created us in his love. Over and over again, the Bible talks about how God loves his creation, that God loves the people of his world, for God so loved the world. God created us, and he loves us, and he created us not simply to be playthings. He created us to be a part of his family. He created us to be his children. He created us so that we would interact with him and glorify him. You see, everything that God does... does for his glory. We were created to glorify God. We were created to willingly um, love and cherish and glorify God. And that is what we were created to do. We were created in such a way that we actually experience the maximum amount of joy when we love and glorify God above all other things. But here's the thing. If you do not possess the ability to choose for yourself, then do you really love And cherish, and glorify God, and we all know the answer to that. Okay, it's it's something that's even in our human relationships. If you are a sane person, you know that you cannot force someone to love you. You cannot force someone to respect you. You cannot force someone to honor you. Because if you do, it is not real. It's false. There's something in all of us that wants real, authentic love and respect and honor. We don't want to be patronized. We don't want people to be forced to love us. We want them to love us completely on their own. Because we understand if you take away that choice, it's not real. It's counterfeit. And it's this same with God. He wants a family who, who really love Him and obey Him. That's what He wants. And only that... He knows that freedom of choice is actually what's best for us. Now this might seem counterintuitive because but it's the truth because if we if we have no freedom we are simply property to be used and exploited. We're just objects to be used, things to be collected. If we have no free will we're no different than a hammer or a football. We're just we're just complicated things that move around. We have no real intrinsic value or worth in ourselves. We would simply exist as puppets and robots, and nobody wants that, and nobody wants to be that. So freedom of choice is actually what's best for us, because because then when we do have that freedom, it's meaningful. So when we turn to God in faith, and when we receive Christ as Savior, we do so because not of a pre-programmed response, but rather an act of the will that God gifted us with, And when we choose God, he is glorified and we are made new. Because freedom of choice is a gift. It's a sacred, precious gift. God loved us so much that he didn't shackle us. He didn't force us. He didn't hold us down to make us love him. He endowed us with the ability to choose. And our choosing him is the best possible outcome. That's why free will is so important. That's why he offered it to his angels. That's why he offered it to mankind. God knew full well the ramifications of his plan. He knew the risks, what they were, and the pain that would come. And and, and he knew what was going to happen. He knew that life on earth would be hard and difficult. He knew that people would suffer. And this loving, all good, all powerful God still offered us free will. It's that important. And that free will is so important instead of, hitting the reset button, or destroying creation and starting over, God in His greatest possible expression of love and His respect for your ability to choose sent His perfect Son into the world to experience firsthand the consequences of the decision that God made to give you free will. Think about that. God gave us free will and as a result, free will was abused. And because of that abuse, we suffer as a result. But we don't suffer alone. God did not remain isolated from the consequences of the decision to give us free will. He did not shield himself from those consequences. Instead, he intervened into human history and experienced the full magnitude of the brokenness that that has resulted from free will. He came and he lived a perfect life and he was despised and mocked. He was betrayed by a friend and his other friends ran away from him. He was arrested on false charges. He was tried in a false proceeding. He was beaten and he was scourged and, and a crown of thorns was thrust on his head. He was forced to carry his own cross for like two miles to the place where they were going to kill him. And then they nailed. Him mercilessly to the cross where they hoisted Him up in the air where He hung in searing agony, bleeding from every inch of His body, dehydrated, thirsty, suffocating under His own weight in the heat of the day. And He hung there for hours. This wasn't minutes. Hours with every second Filled with unimaginable pain, every second filled with thoughts of pain, every second filled with an undescri- indescribable agony, and this went on for hours and hours and hours because of our free will. And if that wasn't enough, he was mocked and spat upon and reviled, and people made fun of him and hurled insults at him as he hung there on the cross. But the very worst part for Jesus is he took upon himself the sins of the entire world: this your sin and my sin. And because of that, God, the Father, poured out his wrath. The wrath that we deserve should have been reserved for us. Instead, he poured that wrath out on his very own son. And he turned his back on the one he loved so much. And for the first time and the last time in all of history, in a way that that we can't even possibly imagine, the Father and the Son broke fellowship in Jesus in unimaginable grief and shocking physical and emotional pain. asked the question we ask, Why? Why? My God, why? Why have you forsaken me? You see, God fully understood what would happen when He gave the angels and humans free will. He knew what was going to happen as a result because He is God and He knew what would happen, but He had a plan. A sovereign plan. A plan to work all the details out for good. As Paul says in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God has a plan and he works all things out for good. Not all things are good. But he works all things out for good. Including Satan's rebellion, including men's rebellion, including your pain. God, because he is sovereign, can take everything and use it for good. Every hurt, every act of violence, every sickness and addiction and injustice and broken heart, he can and he will take all of that and work it out for the good. Because he is in control and has a plan. And that plan included sending his own son into the world to suffer right along with us God experienced the consequences of our misuse of free will God came to suffer with us and he suffered for us and that my friends is how important your free will is God the son suffered the most unimaginable way in order to preserve our free will That's how much God loves you and me and his creation. That's why God has in his sovereignty allowed Satan to live to this point and why he has allowed him to go as far as he has because free will is that important. It was important enough to allow his son to suffer and die for. Now, back to the question of why. If God is truly good, why does he allow Satan, our enemy, to exist And do the things that he has done and continues to do. Well, based on what we've talked about and what we've learned, I want to wrap up with just a couple points. Number one, as people who follow Jesus and love God, I think we need to keep a proper perspective on the implications of this question. And the proper perspective is to keep our mind where we stand. You see, we're finite human beings who will live an average of 70 to 100 years in a universe that's somewhere between 8,000 years to 10 billion years, depending on which Christian you ask, okay? And with that, our lives are very, 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 very short in all of history, okay? And as a finite human being, our minds are capable of holding a limited amount of information. In fact, scientists have estimated the human brain can hold what's called 2.5 petabytes of information, which is like 2,500 terabytes or 2.5 million gigabytes. And that might seem like a lot compared to your iPod, okay? But if you think about the Internet, there's 34,000 petabytes of just video on the Internet, okay? you come to realize that what we can actually hold in our brain is a really tiny comparison to what's actually knowable. And then add that to the fact that we live on a planet that's 8,000 miles across in a universe that's 45 billion light years across. And we reside in this tiny little world inside this giant universe and God created it all. And that he is infinitely greater and bigger than the entire Universe and to say that God's ways are higher than our ways is the most epic understatement in all of human history because there's not even an analogy that even works. Suffice it to say that when we approach God with this question, we're like a four year old child trying to learn quantum physics from the best physicists that the world has ever known times infinity. Okay? we are already starting a place where our understanding is extremely extremely limited that's what job experienced number 2 because we our understanding is limited it doesn't mean that god is unjust it just means we don't understand okay? and, and, and and we don't full, and, and, and our not fully understanding is actually normal because we are limited, finite human beings in contrast. Number three, our understanding should not cause us to become arrogant either and demanding of God, but instead our understanding should drive us closer to him because he does understand and he is in control and he has a plan and he loves us. So we should seek not to demand of the Lord why, We should lean in and embrace him as a child embraces a grandparent and asks softly why. All the while knowing we might not get the answer we seek. Or we might not understand the answer that comes. But what we need to do is we need to trust him nonetheless. And then what we need to do is hold on to what we know. God gave humans and angels free will because he loves us and he wants us to love him back. And that free will is so important to God. And it's important to us. Just look at the cross. Jesus died on the cross for your free will. He died so that you have the freedom to willingly choose to love him. And the last thing that we need to understand is God has a plan. God has a plan to work this stuff out. And we, being finite, cannot see in the moment how it's going to work out. What we need to do is we just need to trust Him that He will work it out. We need to take to Him and hold on to Him and hold on to the promise that He has made, which is that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. Including the existence of the devil and the destruction that he brings in this world. God has a plan. God is in total control and He's at work, working all these things out for our good and for the free will for us to follow Him or not. And so, in the end, it comes down to that question Will you trust Him and will you follow Him or will you not? Let me pray for you, Lord God. Sometimes these answers are hard. Sometimes these aren't the answers that we want to hear. It would just be so much easier, Lord, if there was just a clear dividing line between light and dark and and that we would be able to discern your plan from right off. It would seem like life would be easier if we could just be good and then you would just bless us all the time and then only you know bad things happen when we mess up. It would seem easier, Lord, that it would just be you know, we could just have a list of rules to follow all the time. It seems like it would be easier, Lord, for you just to like vaporize the devil and take away our free will. But I'm going to stand here, a finite man, and confess that I'm ignorant in epic proportions. And what I do know is that you are real, that you exist, and for some reason I don't even understand you love me. And so, what I'm going to do to you is, I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to trust you in your plan. I'm certainly going to ask why at times. I'm going to get my feelings hurt. I'm going to cry out. But in the end, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk in faith in you. And I'm going to believe that you're going to work things out. And I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to be in prayer. I'm going to be in fellowship. I'm going to do all the things that I need to do to be closer to you. Because that's what I want more than anything else. I want to glorify you that's every part of my life. That's what I want more than anything else. I want to desire you above all things because I know that's what's best for me. And so, Lord, I freely choose you. And Father, I just pray for those right now here that are con- contemplating choosing you, that you would give them the courage to choose you and see that Jesus is the only way, as the Word says. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen our hearts to trust in you more. And that you would strengthen us with your Holy Spirit. And that we would have the resolve to stand our ground against this enemy. And I pray that, Lord, we'd go out every single day prepared to do battle. And prepared to win battles for you and for your kingdom. And that we would help to free people from the darkness the enemy has cast over them. Lord, we thank you. I pray that you would raise up in this congregation of people who are passionate for your name and who are willing to go out into this community and the world to storm the gates of hell. We love you and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org and please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.